But let us turn our attention to God's Word, and uh, as we do, uh, I think we have to just stop and recognize uh, New Year dawned. 2018 has begun. Uh, 2017 behind us, a new year dawned. Uh, blank slate lies ahead, all the promise and, and possibility. And it's a great opportunity for us as a church just to stop and take stock of where we are. What has God done as He's brought us this far? And, and what has He planned to do? How do we serve? How do we give ourselves faithfully to the work of the Lord this year? Uh, and as we do that, I want us to just pause and consider uh, our mission statement as a church. This is what we're all about. Um, This is what we want to accomplish this year and every year uh, until the Lord returns um, or takes us home. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. Now, I know you know this. You should know this. We've said it a dozen times, but it's worth saying again. uh, I didn't pull this mission statement out of a hat. This is not my idea of what a church looks like, um, nor did we come about it as is common today by taking a survey to find out what's important to all of us gathered here. That's, that's not how we operate. This is what Jesus says in his word that the church is to be about. This is just what the Bible says, here's your mission, church. And so we say, okay, mission accepted. This is... Matthew 28, uh, 18 to 20. Uh, If you don't have a Bible on you, um, go ahead and slip up your hand. Uh, If you've got one, start flipping open to Matthew 28. Um, I need my Bible, I suppose, while we're at it. Flip over to Matthew 28. Again, if you don't have a Bible, we want you to have one in your hands. It's all about God's Word. I have nothing of value. I'm sorry if you came to hear a great orator, a wise man, you came to the wrong place. Uh, I'm just a fool with a lisping, stammering tongue and God's word. Um, So that's our goal this morning. And I want you to be able to open God's word and see it in front of you and know that this is what God's word says. Um, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. You know, I think it would be really cool for us to start our year uh, reminding one another, reminding ourselves what we're about as the church Um, I want to invite you to stand. Let's read this out loud together. We read Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Some of you might have slightly different translations. We'll just plow through, go with it. Um, Let's read together. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You may be seated. This is God's Word. This is Jesus' mission, His last words to the church. Here's your job, church. Go. That's what we're all about. We were created to glorify God, and this is the number one way that we bring Him glory. It's by making disciples. By growing in that process of discipleship ourselves and by bringing others along. This is our one God-given mission in the world. If we do this, we've succeeded as a church. If we fail at this, we are irrelevant as a church. But I have bad news for us. Our mission, 
our God-given objective on this earth is not something we can accomplish. We, we can't do it. There's no amount of resolve that will accomplish this job. There's no amount of creativity and hard work that will bring this about. A lot of people kind of make fun of New Year's resolutions uh, because of the, the vast number of people that make resolutions and never follow through on them. Um, but church, our New Year's resolution um, is actually impossible. It is unachievable. We need to come to grips with this. Um, we've been given an impossible mission on purpose. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? Uh, his interaction with Jesus, Matthew 19. The man comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says, well, obey the commandments. And this Young man in his, we'll say, arrogance, uh, says, I've done it. I've kept them all since I was a child. And yet in his outward legalism, he knows in his heart that he's still not right with God. And so he immediately follows, follows it up. What, what else do I lack, Jesus? What else is missing? So Jesus pinpoints him. He, he hits him where it hurts. He knows exactly this young man's heart. And so he tells him, take your wealth, your riches, that one thing that you love more than anything else that you've put before God, give it away. Let it go. Give it to the poor. We're told the man went away sad. Wouldn't do it. Jesus' summary of this whole situation is, is found in verses 23 and 24 of Matthew 19. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you've probably been told, as I have, that the eye of the needle was a nickname for a small gate on the side of a city. And that gate was used after dark or in times of of war or distress, when the main gates wouldn't be open, they would use this little gate that they called the eye of the needle. And, and to get through that gate, uh, if a camel was to come through that gate, they'd have to take off all their baggage, shed all of that, they'd have to get down on their knees and shuffle through this little gate. And, and if you've heard that, as, as I have been taught, uh, you've been misinformed. Uh, it's just not true. There's no historical evidence for such a gate existing. Uh, and Jesus makes his point pretty clear. He's talking about a camel, a real one, a live, big animal, the biggest animal in their common kind of day-to-day -day interactions. And he's talking about the eye of a needle, the smallest opening that they have available for illustration. And he says, it ain't going to happen. His disciples get that. They get both the point of what Jesus is saying and the point that it doesn't just apply to the rich man. And they respond to Jesus in verse 25. So when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? They've despaired completely. If it's that hard, if it's as difficult as getting a camel through the eye of a needle, who, who can be saved, Lord? What are we even doing here? What's the point of all this? Jesus doesn't say, don't worry about it, I was just... Uh, speaking in hyperbole, no. He says, verse 26, with man this is impossible. It's impossible. It can't happen. Trying to make a rich man love Jesus more than riches 
Or a proud man love Jesus more than himself. Or a lustful man love Jesus more than sex. Or a gossip love Jesus more than that next juicy story. It's impossible. The human heart doesn't make that leap. That's the bad news. But there's good news. Look again at Matthew 28. Maybe you still have your Bible open there. Uh, Let me ask you this. Where does it start and where does it end? Where does Jesus open this impossible commission and where does he leave it land? What are the bookends to this? Have you seen it? Let me hear you if you see it. Where does he begin and end? It's himself. He starts and finishes with himself. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me and I will be with you till the end of the age. This mission is founded on the authority of Jesus and will succeed by His help, His work. So why? Why give it to us in the first place? Why lay out this totally impossible mission and then say, I will come and do it. You can't do it. I'll help you. And and I think the reason is pretty clear. He, He wants us to do it being reliant and absolutely desperately dependent on Him. Back to the rich young ruler, Jesus says to the disciples, I I didn't misquote scripture, but I left you hanging. Most of you know that. You caught that. Matthew 19, 26. With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. That's what it's about. That's why this new year as our last, make three new years, two new years, um, Everyone else is making New Year's resolutions, making promises to themselves to to work harder, to be more disciplined, to be more efficient, more effective. Um, We want to take this Sunday, this first Sunday of every year, this first week of every year, and give it to prayer. Remind ourselves of our weakness. Remind ourselves of our own inability. Our desperate need for the Lord to work in us and through us if we are going to make an inch of progress on this goal that He has given us. If we're going to do anything of lasting eternal value, we need to stop and begin every year, every day, every hour on our knees. You might be resolving this year to eat healthier, to... to, read more, to do better at work, spend more time with family. That's great. I do not discourage that. Make those resolutions. Keep them. uh, Grow in that. But ultimately, eternally, if we're going to accomplish anything of value, our first resolution as, as individuals and as a church needs to be the one that brings us to our knees. Our third pillar as a church is that we believe firmly in the power of prayer. And the the parallel belief assumed in that is that we don't believe in the power of ourselves. We're just not that impressed with us. We've seen us and it's not that great. We need help. We need Christ. We're, We're surrounded by a world that says, yes, you can. You can do it. Believe in yourself. You can do anything you want. Just just work harder and, and muster the strength and look deep inside yourself. And, and, and a church culture that is loaded with very human-centered strategies of how to gra- gather a crowd. 
There are some preachers and teachers out there today, they are so talented, so gifted, they have created mega churches and they haven't even needed God to do it. And that's tragic. We need to be incredibly leery of that. We need to guard against that in our own hearts. Thinking that my gifts, my talents, my effort is what's going to grow me in Christ this year. Is what's going to grow this church and grow the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we gather 3,000 people and, and have to blow out this wall and gather in the parking lot. Or if we dwindle down to three people, it matters not. If we do it in faithful obedience to the Lord's call, dependent on Him, walking closely with Him, then we've succeeded. And if we do it leaving God behind, putting down our, our own, putting it on our own strength, then we've failed. So as we start this new year as a church, we need to set our sights on that impossible mission. Recognize it is impossible with man. We're not going to do it. We have a God who intends to do it and intends to use us by His mercy and grace to do it. And we need to rely on Him. So I know that's an extended introduction as we kind of orient ourselves uh, to, to start off this year. But that's what this week of prayer is about. Um, that starts today. We want to begin to give this week as just a focused time coming back to prayer, dedicating our church and ourselves to the Lord um, we're going we're gonna to spend uh, our evenings as small groups this week in prayer together. Uh, I'll be emailing out those prayer uh, requests every morning. And that's why this morning, instead of diving back into Ephesians that we've been working our way through, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. It's going to take us some time this year to get back into, into Ephesians. Um, but we're going to go to Philippians 4. And I want to spend the rest of our time there just briefly um, Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 5. We want to be a church filled with, with constantly praying people, desperately praying people. We're actually going to pick up in the middle of verse 5. That's a little bit awkward uh, paragraph here. Paul's just kind of shooting off these rapid-fire commands, as he tends to do from time to time. And uh, verse 4 is the command, rejoice in the Lord always. Verse 5 begins with the command, let your reasonableness be known to all. And then the middle of verse 5, he just kind of throws in this statement. Grammatically, it's not connected to, to anything else here. But I think in the flow of it, uh, he says, the Lord is at hand. And it's connected both to what he has said and what he will say. Uh, so that's where I want to start. Um, so let me read this for us. Ephesians, or sorry, Philippians, that's... Habits die hard. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, picking up the middle of verse 5. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Can we just pause here and pray as we dig into God's word? Father, we need you. Lord, we come humbly to your word. Would you open our eyes? Would you give our hearts eyes to see what you have given to us, the richness of this truth? Would you impress it upon us, God? 
Lord, you have promised to change us, to transform us by the renewing of our minds. That's what we desire. Lord, would you, uh, would you be at work? Would you make us a praying people? Give us, uh, give us the desire, an addiction to, to spending time with you, resting in you. God, help us to see your word clearly and to walk in obedience to it. In Jesus' name. So Paul starts this command, the same place Jesus begins and ends his great commission, the nearness of the Lord. This is a constant word of encouragement through the Old Testament. The Lord is near. You've probably heard uh, the Lord's words to Joshua as he took over from Moses and he's about to lead the Israelites into the promised land. And, and, and Joshua 1.6 says, be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. But the words before that, leading up to that, that that's founded on, is this same promise. Joshua 1.5, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Jesus says, I'll be with you. I'll be near you, Joshua. Psalm 34.18, another sweet promise of scripture. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord is near. Let these words sink in. That is a massive promise. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. If God is for us, who can be against us? He's called us to this this impossible task. He's called us to follow Him through this this brutal, difficult, sin-soaked, disaster-ridden life. And then He said, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. I'll walk alongside you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Not long ago, uh, I asked my oldest son, Ezra, can you go start the van? And a pretty standard task, something most of us are pretty accustomed to doing. Not a big deal, but not for him. Uh, this is the first time I'd asked him to do this. And, and from his perspective, um, anything could happen. Um, what, what all these buttons and levers do. Um, this, this could be dangerous. And so I started to explain to him, get in, put your foot on the brake, put the key in, turn it once, you'll feel it click, turn it again, hold it, but not too long or you'll wreck the starter. Uh, don't you dare touch the, the gear shifter. And I'm walking him through it and I can just see his eyes getting wider and wider. He's terrified. He's terrified. Of course, a little slow as a father, but I, I catch on. And, and my next thought is, okay, I'll go with you. Oh, man. And this just went from terrifying to, to terrific. Dad's coming. I can't screw this up. I can't, I can't do it wrong. I don't have to worry about remembering everything and, and doing perfect. The stress, the fear is gone. Same job, entirely new experience. Dad's with me. We have that from the God of the universe. The Almighty One, our Heavenly Father, saying, don't worry, I'll come with you. Don't fret, don't sweat it. I'll be with you. I'll be there. I'll walk alongside you. I'll help you. I will not leave you on your own. What an amazing promise. What a solid hope to put our feet on. This is the foundation for all that Paul is about to say. God is with us. The Lord is at hand. Therefore, flowing out from that first thing, do not be anxious about anything. That's a hard command. That's a really hard command. 
Anxiety is so, so deeply rooted. It's such a just visceral response that we have so immediately, so quickly. It seems like something completely out of our control. And, and, and because of that, we tend to make excuses for it, don't we? You'll hear people say, well, I'm just a worrier. That's just the kind of person that I am. That's just what I do. And, and the implication is it's not really sin. It's, it's just who I am. Well, I'm sorry, those aren't mutually exclusive Um, I think all of us have had those nights. Something concerns us. Maybe it's a relational issue, a family issue. Maybe it's finances or job security. And once that ball starts rolling, it doesn't matter how tired I am or how late at night it is, there's no stopping it. We just sit there and wring our hands and and run half-baked scenarios through our minds, fretting, anxiety. There's no stopping it. And and we begin to think of ourselves as victims of anxiety, victims of worry, not stopping to think that we are actively sinning in our anxiety. Maybe you are the victim. You likely are of someone else's sin against you. Typically our anxiety comes out of horrible situations that are beyond our control. But look at the command here. It's pretty clear. Do not be anxious about anything. Anything. Doesn't matter how ugly it is, how scary it is, how painful it is. The question is, what do we do with that fear? What do we do with that pain? Do we hold it on ourselves? Do we try to deal with it? Fret about it? Try to fix it in our own heads? Or are we willing to take that to the Lord and trust Him? Think about it this way. Oswald Chambers said that anxiety is a form of unconscious blasphemy against God. Ooh, that puts it in a different light, doesn't it? But really, how could it be otherwise? What are we saying about God when we're up all night worrying? We're saying, God, I don't trust you. We're subconsciously undermining the power and the wisdom and the goodness of our God. God says, I will be with you. God says, you will not be separated from my love for you. He says, I will cause all things to work together for the good of those who love me, who have been called according to my purposes. And in our anxiety, we respond, I doubt it. I doubt it. You might be lying. God, you might be weak. God, you might be a little bit foolish. God, how can I be sure I need to deal with this? I don't truly believe you are who you say you are. Living as though God is near means don't be anxious about anything. But Paul continues. He he flips that negative command into a positive one. What do we do? Don't be anxious, but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Don't be anxious. Pray. Pray. Don't doubt God. Rest in Him. Go to Him. Trust Him. And notice the extremes of this passage. Don't be anxious about anything. There is nothing so big, so terrifying to warrant any anxiety. And on the other hand, pray about everything. There's nothing so small 
so insignificant that it does not warrant our prayers. It goes both ways. Pray about everything. On one hand, our anxiety is a, is a subconscious blasphemy against God as we, as we doubt Him and the goodness of His character. On the other hand, our, our thoughtless, careless prayerlessness is a subconscious blasphemy as we put our trust in ourselves rather than in God. We show by our lack of prayer that we don't really think we need God. We think we've got this. It's pretty much under my control. If, if things, you know, the wheels start to come off the wagon, then I'll pray, but, but I can handle this one. We do this in our personal lives. We do this as churches, and it's insanity. Look at the Lord's Prayer. He covers everything as, as high and lofty as thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As desperate a need of forgive us our sins. And then as mundane and simple as give us this day our daily bread. Everything. He prays about everything. And why wouldn't he? The Lord himself, the God of the universe said, I will be with you. I will care for you. And then we just forget what we're too busy to simply ask him for his help for his wisdom for his power that's arrogance to the point of blasphemous and it's just foolish james 4 2 think about this you do not have because you do not ask man what blessings are we missing out on as a church what comfort and hope and peace and joy do we lack in our lives simply because we fail to ask God for it. There are things that He is ready and willing and eager to give if you would only ask. Let your requests be made known to God. I've heard people say with this kind of false sense of holiness, they, they don't want to bother God with my petty requests. God has bigger things on His plate. He has bigger fish to fry. I'm not going to bother Him with these things. It almost sounds respectful, but underneath it's nothing but pride. Again, assuming I have this covered, I can do this on my own. Belittling God as if He has limited time and limited resources and, and He won't be able to handle everything. He won't be able to take care of everything. So I'll, I'll leave this off His plate. I'll, I'll help God out. It's disobeying God who clearly commands us to come to Him with every need. Every desire. He is able and He is desiring, even commanding us that we would come to Him for everything. And we come to God presenting our requests to Him. This little phrase, with thanksgiving, changes everything, doesn't it? You start to drill down on that. I've seen this done poorly. I've seen this done in a way that somehow comes off as being presumptuous they assume that the lord is at our beck and call it thanks god for answering our prayers in a way that makes god to be almost uh, an obedient butler right as if i have some authority over god and we don't presume upon god and how he will answer and how he will act his his ways are not our ways uh, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts uh, he does not answer prayer in a way that, that we tell him to or often that we expect him to. And, I mean, just stop and think about it. If I really believed 
that God would absolutely answer every prayer exactly how I asked it, I don't think I would ever pray again. It's terrifying. And I, I do not have the wisdom to direct God. I desperately need Him to take my foolish prayers and, and run them, translate them through the grid of His wisdom and answer them with, with what I really need. That's the kind of God that we have. That's the kind of God that we need. But we pray with thanksgiving as we pray with hopeful expectancy. Right? That's the only way to pray with thanksgiving is to, to pray expecting an answer, expecting God to, to act, to move. But that expectancy is rooted not, not in ourselves, not in our own ability to, to influence God, but in the goodness of His character. Look at Matthew 7. Verses 7 to 11, Jesus says to his disciples these amazing statements. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Or if you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask of Him? Jesus tells His disciples, ask God and expect Him to respond. Ask, expect Him to give you good things. And what is that expectancy rooted in? Not in their own power. Not in their own position or influence. But in the character of the giver. The character of God. The goodness of our Father. If, if you who are evil know how to good gifts, how much more will God who is not evil, who is holy, good, give good gifts to those who ask? It's the goodness of the Father. Which is so much more than our goodness as, as, fa- as human fathers, earthly fathers. So what does that say about us? When we pray in a way that is not filled with that thanksgiving, that expectancy, we often do that. We don't expect to hear from God. We don't expect Him to respond. We call it prayer, but really it's just kind of rattling off words and thoughts as if no one is listening. We, we go through the motions but as far as our emotions and our, our expectancy is concerned, uh, we may as well be talking to ourselves or, or wishing on a shooting star. That attitude, that heart in prayer dishonors the goodness of God. I read the other day, uh, the government of South Korea, of course, has been wanting to engage North Korea in peace talks for many years. Um, the last time they talked officially was 2015. And since then, South Korea has phoned North Korea every day, twice a day, Monday to Friday, for two years. I'll save you the math. That's 1,040 phone calls. And of those 1,040 phone calls, not a single one was answered until this last Wednesday. Can you imagine this poor South Korean guy sitting in his office? This is his job. Oh, 3.30. Time to make my absolutely pointless, will not be answered phone call. Like, that's, that's it. He's totally disconnected. He has no expectation because he has no confidence in the, the goodness and the character of the government that he's calling. 
Why would he expect anything different today? He has zero expectancy. And I guarantee you he was absolutely shocked on Wednesday when the ringing stopped and somebody answered. Isn't that far too often us in our prayer lives? Dutifully dialing the number, going through the motions, probably not quite as faithfully as that South Korean government official. But we would be shocked if all of the sudden the Lord was actually listening. All of a sudden he responded in in answering our prayer. What? How, How did this happen? Where did this come from? What does that say about our our understanding of who our Father is? It's tragic. We should not pray that way. I don't even know if we could call it prayer to do that. To pray is to to lean in, to to desperately ask, to to beg. I, I pray you. We ought to pray with thanksgiving flowing out of an expectancy that God is listening. He is near. He will answer. Because he's a good father. Because he loves us. Because all powerful God has invited us to come to him with every request. And he desires to show himself good and glorious in answering those requests. Now he doesn't answer in our own timing. He doesn't always answer in the way that we would like to see. Often that grid of his wisdom translates our prayers to something very different from what we expected or hoped for. And often not even ways that we can see. But he answers. He always does. We ought to trust him and be grateful for what he is going to do in response to our prayers. Even if it is not what we were hoping for. Because he's wiser. He's better. We pray with that expectant thanksgiving in all things. And isn't that the exact opposite of anxiety? Expectant thanksgiving. That's what leads us into verse 7. This promise that caps it all off. Uh, I want us to really grasp this. I wish we could really spend more time in this. Verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, that's what we're after. That's what our lives are after. Even if you don't know it, that's what you're after. Of course, to have the peace of God, we need to have peace with God, which comes only through Christ. Those who have given their lives to him, those who have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, have have been brought to peace with God. If you have not done that, you will never have the peace of God. You're fooling yourself to think that you do. There is no peace. But in Christ, as we come to God in prayer, there's this promise of the peace of God. That's what we're after. That's what our hearts long for. We need to set our sights on this. And here's what I want us to grasp, because you will will never be faithful in prayer if you're motivated by discipline. You will never be faithful in prayer if you're motivated by, by duty. 
Both of those are necessary. Both of those have their place and are good. But you will only be faithful in prayer when you're motivated by delight. When your heart begins to taste the goodness of that peace of God. To rest in that. To be near Him. That's what should motivate our prayer. That's why so many people who who set themselves to uh, New Year's resolution, I'm going to spend 20 hours a week in prayer and I'm going to be disciplined and dutiful. I'm going to do it and they fail. Why? Because there's no delight. We always seek after that which our heart delights in. We need to set our hearts on this peace of God, get a taste of that. We need to get addicted to the the peace of God, the nearness of God, and only then will we be drawn back. Yes, it will often take discipline, and there should be a sense of duty there. We have been commanded to do it, but the goal and the hope is delight in God. But let's be clear about what this peace looks like. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding. Paul literally says it it is beyond the mind. Doesn't make sense. What does that tell us about it? It tells us it's not rooted in the fact that everything is now going my way. Right? It means that your peace does not come from the fact that you needed a car, so you prayed for a car, so God gave you a car, now I have peace. Jim was sick, we prayed for Jim, God healed Jim, now I have peace. You needed a job, you prayed for a job, God gave you a job. Or your marriage is falling apart, so you prayed for your marriage, now your marriage is wonderful. That's not the peace that God is talking about here. Because that peace makes sense, right? That peace is logical. Even the world understands that peace. The peace that Paul is talking about is radically different from that. This is the peace that is beyond all of that, outside of that, in in defiance of logic and reason. And notice, it's not just the unbelievers who don't understand. I think that's where I would kind of default to when I was reading this verse before. But, But no, it's just beyond understanding, even for us as believers, even for those who experience it. You ever read the book of Habakkuk? A lot of people haven't. I think there's a missed gem there. If you're flipping your Bible open and dropping a finger, um, you probably will never get to the book of Habakkuk. It's only about three pages. That's a pretty good shot. Um, If you're picking verses off of coffee mugs and and reading those, you you probably will never get to Habakkuk. Um, Those of us on the the Bible, uh, through the Bible in a year plan, the RPM plan, um, guess what? I hope you're going to make it to Habakkuk. Maybe some of you even now, we're starting a, a, through the Bible in a year this New Year's. I hope so. Uh, I hope a bunch of us are going to read Habakkuk this year, and maybe some for the first time. And that's good, because these are amazing stories of God's faithfulness and His goodness and, and faithful men. And, and these stories need to really sink down into our psyche. These need to form the way that we think and operate and understand our world and our God. Let me give you the Coles notes on Habakkuk. He was in a crisis. It was ugly. The nation of Israel was being led by King Manasseh, who was one of the most wicked kings that Israel had seen, and that's saying a lot. Uh, They were worshiping Baal. He was surrounded by, by violence, by debauchery, by rape, by injustice, by idolatry. It was it was disastrous. And he had been praying for change. 
but so far he had not seen God do anything. So the book opens with this just soul-crushing prayer of Habakkuk. Listen to him cry out, O Lord, how long shall I cry to you for help and you will not hear? Or cry out to you violence, but you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look on wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous and justice goes forth perverted. He's absolutely crushed. He's broken. He's asking God, where are you? Why are you letting this happen? Why won't you answer me, God? Some of you know that prayer. Some of you prayed that prayer last night as you were up late fretting. God, why is this happening? Don't you care about this ugliness, this pain in my life? Don't you care about this disaster? Why do you allow iniquity to continue like this, God? When will you answer me? The Lord does answer Habakkuk. Not at all how he expected. We need to see this. We often don't have this insight, but in this instance, for, for our instruction, God is gracious to Habakkuk, and he, and he tells him how he's going to answer Habakkuk's prayer. And, and I think if, if the Lord had not told him this, he would never have made the connection. He tells Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 5, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your day that, if you, that you would not believe if told. And we think, wow, this is going to be great. And that verse is often used this way, right? Like, oh, God is doing a work that you would not believe in your day. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, to march through the breadth of the earth and seize dwellings not their own. The work that God is going to do in response to Habakkuk's prayer is not to bring them back to himself, is not to restore justice or righteousness or peace. He's going to bring destruction and justice for their discipline. And even more bewildering to Habakkuk, he's going to use the Chaldeans to do it. Chaldeans were a just wicked and godless nation. And the rest of the book of Habakkuk is, is him just wrestling hard with God. God, how... How could you do this? You can't, you can't look on evil. This can't be all right. How would you use this even more wicked nation to, to discipline your people? And Habakkuk wrestles hard with God. He had no logical reason for peace. But as he prays and goes back and forth with God, we see the depth of Habakkuk's faith rise to the surface. And that prayer produces a peace beyond all understanding. He's told that war and destruction and violence and death are going to come upon his country, where he lives, the country that he loves. That's God's answer. And listen to Habakkuk's response. This as he's wrapping up the book, Habakkuk chapter 3, starting in verse 16. It's not easy. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet. Whenever you see the word yet, reading through the prophets, stop and pay attention. 
Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. And then verse 17, listen to this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. What's he saying? If everything I value, if everything I trust in is taken away, everything I need is removed from me, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. How do you get there, Habakkuk? God didn't answer your prayer, right? It's a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's exactly what Paul is promising in Philippians. A peace that is in Christ Jesus, he says. A peace that says, no matter what else happens, regardless of whether or not my prayers are even answered the way I hoped or expected, even if you answer my prayer by bringing increased suffering for your glory and for my eventual ultimate good, even if I have no good thing left in this earth, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Second Job. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Of course, Jesus is the embodiment of the God of our salvation, is he not? His his very name means the Lord saves. I will have peace because Jesus Christ has saved me from my sin and the wrath of God that I deserved. In Christ, I know that God is for me and never against me. That he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In Christ, I have confidence of the goodness of God and that all of that goodness is ultimately bent toward me as I put my faith in Christ. William Cowper was a Believer of the late 1700s, he's a friend of John Newton, he wrote Amazing Grace, but, but Cowper struggled deeply with depression and despair. And his troubled heart just plagued him throughout his entire life. He never had assurance of his salvation. He had a difficult life, a dark, despairing life. But out of the depths of that struggle, came numerous hymns that that we sing here today. Uh, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. That's, That's Cowper. One night, he found himself just in the pit, and he decided to end it all, to take his own life. And so he left his house, heading down to the River Thames to drown himself. And the Lord made such a heavy fog descend over London that he got lost in his own hometown. And he never made it to the river. You've heard the phrase, God works in mysterious ways. Cowper wrote that. Listen to these words. This is the last hymn that ever came from his pen. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. 
He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. It's a peace that that goes beyond understanding. That's where prayer should take us. I know there's a lot of people here who just have heavy burdens. Things going on in your life that just is not right. This is not the way God intended it to be. There's suffering, there's cancer, there's broken relationships. How do I come to prayer with with expectant thanksgiving? Trusting in the God's goodness. Trusting that He is who He says He is. Knowing the Lord is at hand. The God of the universe, Almighty God has said, I will be with you. I will not remove every suffering from you, but I will walk through it with you. So don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, making your request known to God with that expectant thankfulness rooted in His goodness and ending in that peace that that passes all understanding. A peace that's rooted in Christ Himself. You want to grow in Christ this year? Do you want to experience and live in that peace? Do you want to see the church of Christ increase and, and thrive and grow and, and, and lost people saved and saved people matured and mature people multiplied? The road we need to be on as a church and as individuals is the road of prayer. That's the way. With man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. Let's not let another year slip by in prayerlessness. We're going to close our service this morning in communion. I'll invite Tim and Marissa to come back up. Isn't that the perfect place to end as we consider the trustworthiness of God? What confidence do we have that the Lord is at hand? What what hope do we have of His His goodness toward us? How can we be sure? As I stare this darkness in my life in the face, how can I know that behind that frowning providence there lies God's smiling face? We know that in Christ. We know that because He has put it on display in an undeniable way on the cross. It's only because of the cross that we can even pray, that we can even come into the throne room of God. And because of the cross, we have confidence that God is for us. That someday, someday, God give us grace, someday we will look back and say, He prays His name. He works all things to the good of those who love Him. You stand, let's sing together as communion is handed out.